What were they talking about? Hmm. The mystery of the ages. Told her to make sure I didn't leave the gas on in the kitchen. It's an electric range. How many of you have heard this sentence? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. See your hand. (laughs) Okay, I don't know if what context you've heard that in. It could be, you know, in the process of preaching or somebody just talking to you or what have you. But the first time I learned of it, it's because it was step number one in the Steps to Peace with God. At least I believe that's the particular track that it was on published by the Billy Graham um, Association. And so the way, you know, I was taught to use this track as a very young Christian was you memorize those first four steps and some of the verses that go to each of those. And when you're talking to somebody, you can give a very cogent presentation of the good news of Jesus in a pretty succinct way. And so God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is absolutely true. But it is also absolutely wildly misunderstood. It gives the impression very easily that, well, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. So if you're saying that I turn my life over to God, that everything's just going to be wonderful. Well, God hasn't changed, which means God has a a wonderful plan for everybody's life, which includes all the people of the Old Testament as well as everybody since then. And I don't know why I, th- I only thought about this this particular little little introduction here yesterday. For some reason, that verse came to mind because I was kind of recapping where we've been with David and Saul in, in the book of First Samuel. And of course, David, you know, is one of the the biggest bigger biggest names I would argue of the Old Testament people, and his life, in so many different ways, was anything but wonderful depending on the way you interpret that thing, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, what wonderful actually means is that your life will be full of wonder. And indeed, our lives are full of wonder when we are known by the creator of the universe. That doesn't mean or imply in any way, shape, or form that our lives are just going to be, you've heard me say it many times, you know, skipping through the, the daisies with uh, rainbows and unicorns throwing glitter on you your whole life. That certainly was not David's experience. And in fact, that's never been anyone's experience of faith. But God did have a wonderful plan for David's life. And in chapter 24, part of that wonderful plan was David and his men hiding out in a cave only to be visited unbeknownst to King Saul who was actually trying to track David to track him down to kill him. But biology took over and he had to find a place to take care of those things. And he went into this cave right into the hands of David. But Saul, unbeknownst again to that, David was able to procure a piece of Saul's garment such that when Saul finished and he left the cave, later on David would be able to approach Saul and say, why do you insist on believing the rumors that I am your enemy? Look, 
and holds up the piece of his garment saying, the Lord delivered you into my hand today. If you were my enemy, I could have taken your life. And Saul has a minor epiphany for the moment at any rate and says, indeed, David, you are not my enemy for an enemy would have done just what you said. And furthermore, I know that you are going to be king. It was to be short-lived, and then we have this intrusion in the next chapter that we talked about the last time we were together. We were introduced to two characters, Nabal, whose name means fool, and Abigail, his wife, whose name means my father, meaning God, my father, is joy. Nabal's name was descriptive of who he was and how he lived his life. And was it not for his faithful, sharp, astute wife, Abigail, going and interceding for him, he would have been executed by King David. Because David had sent some of his men, that's all folks, sent some of his men, there we go, to go ask him for provisions for their journey. Now this was not something out of the ordinary. Because David and his troops had been out in the willy wags and part and parcel of their being out there is he provided protection to Nabal's shepherds who were watching over Nabal's flocks, basically his wealth. And so it was customary of the day that the individuals responsible for that could go and expect some kind of assistance on their journey. Instead, Nabal greeted David's men and by that David with scorn and ridicule. That's not a wise thing to do when you're talking to the one who's already been anointed king over God's people, even if he wasn't yet fully living in the realization of that. So Nabal scorns the anointed king to be, rejecting him as just another poser with an overinflated sense of his importance. So like I said, Abigail intercedes. She talks David out of going and killing her husband because she provides all the assistance and everything that he had wanted in the first place. And he's taken by the humility and the prudence of this woman. We're talking about the Old Testament. And in summation, the Old Testament, as we know, is a history of mere mortals with all of their strengths and all of their weaknesses, and on display for us, which is kind of encouraging, is also all of their warts and all of their pimples, and we see them, even the biggest names, were very, very flawed individuals. But the Old Testament is much more than just the story of personalities and of nations and kings. It is much more than merely fantastical tales which serve little more purpose than warming up the crowd like an opening band for the New Testament rock stars of the night. The Old Testament, rather, is the sequential unfolding of the greatest story ever told about God's coming to earth to redeem a human race so utterly messed up that it cannot even get out of its own way, much less save itself from an eternity of suffering. 
and contained within the stories of the Old Testament are life principles for navigating the challenges of existence with people who as a whole have no desire for any kind of God, much less the true God. They have no desire or ability to appease the indignation of a righteous, holy, sin-hating God whose perfect nature, while merciful and gracious, is also always just. And because he is just and holy, he still demands perfection. The people of the Old Testament, consequently, needed to know that there was a day of hope, that there was a day of promise ahead, because God promised a coming Redeemer, a Messiah, who would save his people from their sins. And again, as we know, and we'll continue to see as we move along, that King David was a very real, very flawed human being himself in need of a Savior, Messiah. But he was also one of numerous front runners of that coming King who would be used of God to reveal and to reveal by example the coming Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the only hope who is there for all of mankind. To reject Him is to be Nabal, the fool, who instead of receiving, again, the gracious kindnesses of the soon-to-be hand-picked king of God's own choosing, he ridiculed him, scorned him, scoffed at his request, and he trampled upon David's goodness. The Old Testament. Three quarters of the Bible is the Old Testament. Seventy-five percent is the Old Testament, and it is God-inspired, and it is good, and we diminish it to our peril. And that situation is growing worse year by year. The value of the Old Testament cannot be overstated. To begin with, our very doctrine of inspiration that comes to us from the Scriptures in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture, not all New Testament, but all Scripture, Old and New Testaments, is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for training and or instruction in righteousness. Article number two on the topic of the Bible in the Statement of Faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America says this, We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And this morning, while I cannot remember who I am quoting, I just remember this quote, and it's recent. And the quote is, The wave of non-offense is the compelling force of our day, and it has invaded and is taking over the church. A few weeks back, I mentioned, actually it would have been our 
two, two of my messages ago, but three, four weeks now with some interruptions in there. I mentioned that a renowned megachurch pastor, author, speaker, who supposedly stated that as New Testament Christians, we needed to move away from the Old Testament. And because I could think of myself saying that, giving a big context and caveat to that statement, I could see myself saying something like that, but it would need a lot of qualification and clarification. And so I was uncomfortable with giving any more details because although it was from a very reliable source that I trust, I believe I mentioned that there had to be, there just had to be more to what was said than what I had heard and read. Maybe it had been lifted out of context, or maybe it was only partial, or maybe it was just plain misunderstood. But now, the popular pastor has codified his thoughts so that there isn't much room, I would say no room, for misunderstanding as he writes in his new book titled Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. The Gospel Coalition is my reliable source. And on there this week, I read a review of the book written by Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, or known as RETS, the uh, Charlotte campus. And there's one in Florida, or a couple in Florida. And, of course, it is the renowned institution of of solid theology founded by the late R.C. Sproul. Dr. Kruger is the uh, professor of New Testament at Retz in Charlotte. And given the detail of the review and, again, the reliability of the Gospel Coalition, I am much more comfortable now revealing that that author and renowned speaker and well-known megachurch pastor is Atlanta Pastor Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, which is mind-boggling. But Dr. Kruger writes, and for for uh, uh, some time here now, for the next several minutes, I will either be quoting directly most of the time or paraphrasing the comments of Dr. Kruger. So I want to put that up right out, uh, right, put that right out front, rather than just plagiarizing his own thoughts. He writes, "Few would disagree that we're now living in an effectively post-Christian world." Secularism is on the rise, church attendance is in decline, and hostility to Christian values is ever-increasing. In light of this foreboding landscape, it's appropriate to ask whether the church is on the right track. Have we missed something? Are we doing something incorrectly that we need to change? Quoting now Andy Stanley's latest volume, Irresistible, answers that question with a resounding yes. We have been on the wrong track, and we need to change if we are going to reach the next generation with the gospel. What is this wrong track? It's that modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. If I were to stop there, my eyeballs would just be shaking and rolling around with discombobulation. If anything, the church of Jesus Christ is profoundly ignorant of the Old Testament and doesn't know very much of it at all, much less knowing how to use it or what good it's for. 
On page 91 of Stanley's book, Irresistible, he writes, The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. Huh? Dr. Kruger continues, Thus Stanley offers a clear call to church leaders. Here it is page 315 of his book, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? This is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list, page 280. Put simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. (coughs) Stanley's failure, as far as I see it, as far as the core problem with his ditching the Old Testament, is that he fails himself to understand and to distinguish between moral law civil law, and ceremonial law in the Old Testaments. The moral law is that which is derived directly part and parcel from the very holy nature, character of God Himself. Because God does not change, moral law does not change, never will change, until or unless God changes, which of course He won't. Moral law remains intact. And we better understand that. Even a people saved by grace through faith. But civil law, that which governed how the society of the Old Testament would operate and work under God's good graciousness in giving them all kinds of, to us, very strange at times, weird uh, laws and things that were meant, in some cases, were, were meant to, to contain illnesses like leprosy. And so you had these radical laws about how you would properly cleanse garments or clothing or households so as to prevent such infections. It was done in mercy and grace. But those things are not in stone, literally, and could be changed throughout history, and they have been. And then you have the ceremonial law, which were all the detailed laws concerning the Old Testament rituals of Judaism, which were expressly designed to help us understand the profound nature of the coming Messiah, who would be the once for all supreme Lamb of God, sacrificed, killed for the sins of all mankind, once for all, never to be repeated like the annual ritual of Passover, putting the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, and all the sacrifices that we're all pointing to the one final solution in Jesus Christ. And we know that when He came, the law was not jettisoned. It was fulfilled. So no matter how you cut it, Pastor Stanley is just wrong. The Ten Commandments, there is a cue for this, I went a little uh, far afield there. (laughs) The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, you, Pastor Stanley writes. None. To be clear, 
Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Page 136. He goes even further. Paul never leverages the Old Covenant as a basis for Christian behavior. Page 209. Despite the fact that the Apostle Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth from the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. One of the tenets of good, solid, reliable, not perfect, but good, solid, reliable hermeneutics, which is the process of interpreting God's word as you are delivering it and applying it to life. One of those tenets is asking yourself, especially in difficult places of the word, well, how did Christians and theologians in, in, in ages much closer to the history, how did they understand those things? Even how did the people of the day understand certain things that may perplex us? And if you find them saying things that go contrary to what we think it says, we probably better back up and reassess. Well, Stanley's view is that the church fathers, meaning those who were right there, some eyewitnesses to Jesus, others who lived within uh, the time when there were eyewitnesses to Jesus who they could ask things to get clarification on and all of that thing, Stanley says, well, the church fathers were simply wrong as well. Wow. Wow. And then he really blows up the doctrine of inspiration and prophetic use of the Old Testament in foretelling the coming of the Messiah Redeemer, quoting, insisting that attempts to find Christ in the Old Testament are simply instances of the Jewish scriptures being hijacked by Christians who are ignoring original context, page 156 of his book. Even more, he argues, this Christ in the Old Testament approach has led Christians toward anti-Semitism. I do not understand Pastor Stanley's hermeneutic, but if nothing else, it does illustrate that even when one has graduated from the second best seminary in the country, Dallas Theological Seminary, the first being Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, does not guarantee a healthy, reliable handling of the word, the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. You may never have heard this before, so mark it down. Scripture interprets Scripture. And I demonstrated that the last time I spoke with you all, citing particularly and pointedly and on purpose, Peter, the Apostle Peter's little sermon that he gave in the New Testament concerning the Old Testament in the book of Acts chapter 3. Peter is speaking again at the very birth of the church now of Christ in the New Testament. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled... 
Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. He continues, Moses, going even further back into the Old Testament, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Get this. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, meaning the days of which Peter was speaking in at that time. It is you who are the sons and the daughters, I add, of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, even going back farther than Moses, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed, referring to the coming Redeemer, Messiah, the one and only Jesus, the Christ. Now, if you believe Andy Stanley, you have to conclude that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and numerous others in the New Testament have also hijacked the Jewish Scriptures But it gets even worse because Jesus also hijacked the Jewish scriptures to use Stanley's phrasing. What am I referring to? Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to the disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, which was the Old Testament. So, how does this sort of mind-boggling twisting of Scripture, actually it's not even twisting, it is now just uh, 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 getting rid of it altogether, how does this get any traction today? And of course, we can talk about the cults and the sects, that, are, but I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about how does this get traction in the, not the main, main line, but the mainstream of evangelical Christendom that Andy Stanley would represent. I bring it down to two things. This is certainly not comprehensive. First reason this gets traction is the person moves away from a personal routine of saturation in the whole counsel of God's word. The key word there is personal. Personal saturation of God's word. Meaning what? Meaning that reading what someone else has to say about the Bible or listening to what somebody else says about the Bible or watching somebody else and what they say about the Bible has to say and all of that instead of wrestling with the word as a lifetime discipline for yourself is completely different. And this is just one reason why I am not crazy about devotionals. Uh, What? There's more to the sentence. That's one reason I am not crazy about devotionals 
as a substitute for one's personal time in the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God. And it is not a substitute. But many, many, frighteningly many view that in their little daily bread or whatever their devotional happens to be as their time with the Lord for the day. They are learning about God. They are not learning of God, by God, and through God. What happens as a result of that? Well, personal conviction runs really low. It's shallow. It's superficial. Because you don't really have personal conviction. What you have is borrowed conviction of your reliability or interest in likability in the person that you are listening to or reading or watching. Again, that is a world of difference from you wrestling with God's inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word. And so you think that you have conviction until the first time that it's challenged at any significant level, and sometimes not even at a significant level. Well, I, 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 well, I believe that because Pastor Stanley says it. And I mean, come on, man. He's got five different campuses, 32,000 members in his church. You can't be wrong. He's the son of Charles Stanley. That's my conviction, yeah. But what about this? I don't remember Pastor Stanley saying anything about that. There is no conviction. You have only borrowed convictions of all the the melange of the people that have put into your life. Which is why if I or whoever is speaking in this pulpit, pulpit is all you get, you may find strength, and I hope you do, and find faith in my conviction and what I hope is reliable, ardent exegesis hermeneutics of God's Word, but that is not a substitute for your own personal grappling with it. Because when you are in God's Word and the Holy Spirit just causes that thing to jump out of there and all of a sudden it's like it just, it just goes like this and it's like all of a sudden you see it applying to this and this and this and it's like, oh, that makes so much sense all of a sudden. Now you've got personal conviction. And that will stand up to challenge. So what happens when you have borrowed conviction? Well, when the world, the flesh, and or the devil confronts you, your so-called conviction is prone to collapse or compromise relatively quickly. Second thing, the second way this gets traction in an evangelical environment, it's because it can tend to sound evangelism forward, meaning evangelistic friendly, meaning, meaning, well, the reason, and I do know this, this from, from the, the rest of, of, of what, what Stanley has written, that, 
that the big part of why he wants to just dump the Old Testament is because there's so many difficult things in there and so many things that people struggle with and have heard, and they're offended by them. And so that prevents them from even wanting to give the rest of God's inspired, infallible, and authoritative word any opportunity to help them work through those issues to see the glorious grace and mercies and all of that stuff in the Old Testament is all pointing toward to this and this is all fulfilled and that's how this is resolved and it does make sense if you give it a chance. But they won't give it a chance because they'll come in and they'll get offended and they'll hear me say something about this, that, or this moral precept, that moral principle, and then they're out the door. And so in the name of wanting to win them to Jesus, we're going to do away with anything and everything that gives offense and just have them sitting here and we'll talk about a God of cherry cake and ice cream. Cherry cake? I don't know. I'm telling you, it's getting really scary. My brother is an elder in a mega church in northern Indiana. He is deeply entrenched just as a lay person in ministry. He heads up Celebrate Recovery of the mega church, the attendance of which are bigger than most main churches. He's part one of the worship leaders and all of this, and all of this he does in his spare time. So he's at an elder meeting just week before this past week. And he says, and there's about 50 elders in the church. He says, our pastor said, I want you guys to think about something. I don't want you to say anything today because I just want you to go away and I want you to think about it. And we'll come back and we'll talk about it. But what if we were to do away? <laughs> what if we were to do away with all requirements for church membership? <laughs> Wait, what? And my brother said, and you know, me being, being Mr. Sunshine, as I am, always pulling the good out of the, okay, not me. But I said to him, you know what, Jim? I said, maybe, maybe your pastor isn't going where you think he's going. Maybe your pastor is testing you, the elders. And he just wants to see when you come back together again, how much, how many of his elders is going to go, hey, you know, that's a really good idea. Because if it was me and I had the uh, the authority, I'd say, you think it's a good idea, right? Boom, you're out of here. So my brother said, yeah, I don't think he's testing us. And he said, but if it is that that's what he is contending, he goes, I will be out of here. So what happens with all this is that in the name of being a seeker-sensitive or a seeker-friendly church, Church becomes overly sensitive, seeing Sunday morning now as being the place primarily where evangelism takes place of the unsaved instead of a place for equipping those who are already saved. And so the whole tenor, tenor of what the church is revolves around that focal point of not being offensive lest someone leave and thereby we lose the opportunity to speak hope and grace into their life. I understand the motivation, but holy cow, is it wrong-headed from the get-go? Think about Jesus. You just don't see Jesus going... Ooh, boy, man, this woman here at this well, what a hot mess she is. 
She's had four different guys. She's on her fifth guy right now. And she's not, and, and I mean, uh, what am I? He says, okay, look, you want to talk here? You're asking some theological questions. Go home and get your husband and bring him back. She goes, uh, yeah, about that. <laughs> she could have went, well, don't judge me. How dare you judge me? You know, it's love. We love each other. And I just have so much love that I can't, one man can't contain it all. And so I have cereal. Okay. Jesus said, no, let's go do that. But you see, the Holy Spirit of God was working on her. And instead of being offended to run, she was perplexed and wowed and went back to her community and said, hey, I got to tell you about this special guy. Think about Jesus with the one we fondly refer to as the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? <laughs> Jesus, you got to sit there and think, oh man, he's just having too much fun with this. He says, well, okay, first of all, you got to do this, do this, do this. And he's citing from the commandments, the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. How dare he? So he's saying, and, and the rich young ruler, and I believe he, he believed himself. And he goes, got it, done. Yeah, I've, 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 I've fulfilled those. <laughs> so Jesus goes, okay, hmm, he's really rich and everything, but I don't want to offend him. How do I do this now? Jesus says, well, there's one more thing you need to do. Sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And what does the text say? Right. He got offended and he walked away. What do we read in Scripture? The book of Ephesians. Oh boy, we're getting late. Real quickly. The Lord gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The goal of the local body of Christ, first and foremost, is to come together and together with unified hearts and minds, give glory and praise and adoration to the King of Kings and the Lord God Almighty. The second purpose of coming together is to equip those who are already saved for what? For the purpose of being ready and able to go out now and get the unsaved and bring them into a saving faith in Christ. To what end? So that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. How many thousands of Christians now and more through Stanley's book are going to, I mean, not that they were already entrenched in the Old Testament, but now they can feel good about completely ignoring it. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. I'll finish this way. In the book of Jude, it's only one chapter long, shortest book, that way. Verses 1 through 3 are 
really eye-opening. This is what Jude writes. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, stop. What a strange way to get... Well, here's what I was going to write to you. I was going to write to you about your and my gospel good news salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Okay. But I found it necessary instead to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The word is translated elsewhere as fighting physically fighting. It's an aggressive word. It means, no, this is serious stuff and this is going to take energy and you got to do this. I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, meaning that which has already been delivered through the prophets and the priests, or the prophets rather, and the uh, um, uh, <laughs> the apostles. Thank you. Gee, I got Ben's disease. But you're not old enough there yet. The Holy Spirit interrupts Jude. This is what inspiration is. God oversees human people writing through what their things. But Jude's like, well, here's what I was going to write, but then, eh, you know, no. I changed my mind. No, he didn't. The Holy Spirit changed his mind. Instead, I want you to write to make sure that your people, that the Christians everywhere for all time know that they are going to have to fight to maintain the faith that is in here once for all delivered to the saints because everything's going to be trying to take them away here, there, and everywhere. And boy, don't we see that being lived out. We diminish the Old Testament to our peril. And even worse, if we completely throw it out, as Pastor Stanley seems to be advocating. Sports fans, we have an important election on Tuesday. And you know... It, it, it's over, over, as things go over the years, things start driving me a little bananas when you hear people say, well, you know, you just get out and vote. You just go out and vote there. The best thing in the world you can do is just go out there and vote and let your voice be made heard. And I'm like, no, no, it's not important that you go out there and just vote. What's important is that you go out there and you vote for those principles and precepts and values that are consistent with the one who defines what is good and right and true. If you're not going to vote for God's heart and mind on the things, I'm the first person in the world to say, please stay home. Don't vote. I won't hold it against you. So we have to vote for those things which are consistent with the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we see throughout your word, O oh God, the perils that come on those individuals who trample your goodness, your morals, your values which emanate from your very character and nature. How much more, O oh God, the cities, the states, the nations, and the countries around the world that do the same. 
You are a good, kind, loving God, which is why you promised those whom I love, I will chastise, I will discipline. Because I want you to come into the fullness of all that I have for you, and that can only be obtained by living life according to my guide, my rules, my precepts for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Father in heaven, let your people hear your voice in these things today and go with them, Holy Spirit, into the voting booth and vote for godliness, not perfection, but godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.